Please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapters 5 and 6 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 569 through 571. And I'm only going to read chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 7, but we will be looking at the entire two chapters this morning. And chapter 5 gives us the, uh, the next indictment against Judah's, um, God's people, for their covenant unfaithfulness. And it's given in a form of a parable. And uh, we see this in the first seven verses that I'll read this morning. Then the remainder of chapter 5, we see the consequences of the sin, the consequence, the judgment on the sin. And the following, or I should say, this follows that pattern that we have seen throughout this book. We see sin, judgment, grace, repeat. Sin, judgment, grace, repeat. And the sin and the judgment, they're seen in chapter 5, but grace is seen in chapter 6. And this is a well-known chapter. We've already read several portions of it uh, already in our service. And Isaiah 6 is this, uh, um, the call of Isaiah. This amazing uh, chapter of his call. And this call actually takes place prior to the first five uh, chapters that we've read. Uh, these indictments. These indictments are actually sermons that, that uh, Isaiah has uh, preached to the people. And in fact, it's this vision of God, this divine commission that was given to Isaiah that empowers his preaching. That empowers him, that gives him the ability to endure, to, to, res- the, the, to resist the hostility that he's facing, uh, that, that his preaching has produced in the people. So Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice and behold bloodshed. For righteousness and behold an outcry. Let's pray. Father, would you pray for your spirit to be with us. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me, Lord, that I will speak your truth and only your truth. Father, I pray that each of our hearts will be softened, that we will hear the message that you have for us this morning. And Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that each one of us will be conformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. When his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis offers this thought experiment. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's 
getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew these jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he is making quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's, he's throwing a new wing here. He's, he's putting an extra floor here. He's running up towers. He's building courtyards. So you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace, a palace he intends to live in himself. You see, many Christians and many Christian churches think that the end goal of Christianity is simply to get saved. It's simply not to go to hell. So once a person says a prayer or walks down an aisle or invites Jesus into his heart or or has been baptized or joined a church or maybe occasionally attends a church, that's it. No more is required of them. God is happy. You don't have to worry about God anymore. You you can just get on your life. You've had your ticket punched. But getting saved is not the goal of the Christian life. It is the start of the Christian life. And God promises and God expects so much more of his children. He promises and he expects that his children will produce fruit. Good works, keeping with repentance. And God enables and he expects every believer to grow in grace, grow in sanctification, grow in holiness, to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And failure to grow, or even worse than that, failure to even want to grow, is really a sign that a person has not been regenerated, that a person has not been saved. And this is the the situation that Isaiah addresses in this parable. This vineyard, this represents God's people. It was planted by God himself. God planted it on a fertile hill, as he said in verse 1. God dug it out. He cleared out the stones. He planted the choicest of vines. And he built a, a a, a watchtower and a hedge around it to protect it from enemies. So God provided everything that was needed for them to be successful. He gave them all the advantages that they needed to produce an abundant crop. All the ingredients were there. And he expected it to yield fruit. But instead of yielding these choicest grapes, it yields wild grapes. In other words, the fruit was no different than would have naturally occurred without the work, to all the work to plant the vineyard. His, his vineyard was indistinguishable from just the surrounding wilderness. And this parable is about God's covenant people who had all the advantage of the covenant. They had God's law. They had God's protection. They had God's provision but they still failed to produce fruit. They failed to be holy as God is holy. They were wild grapes. Wild grapes that were no different than the the people who were not God's covenant people. They were no different than the people who did not know God. And since they had no interest in producing fruit, God removes all the benefits. God removes all the protections that they received as part of this covenant community. Basically, God says, if you want to be like everyone else, then go. I'll treat you like everyone else. And God expected them to be holy just as he is holy. God expected justice because he is a God of justice. But instead they were violent. Instead they produced bloodshed. As we've seen elsewhere, they exploited the weak. They exploited the poor. Instead of righteousness, because God is a righteous judge, they were wicked. And the rest of this chapter, chapter 5, Isaiah really fleshes out this failure of holiness, the holiness of God's people. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a high-level look at these sins and their corresponding judgments. We see these different sins. They are listed as woes here in this chapter. And woe is basically the opposite of a blessing. It's a pronouncement of God's curses, God's curses on his own people, his covenant people, for their unfaithfulness. So in verse 8 and following, we see the sin here of greed. It says that they join house to house and add field to field. So basically what they're doing is they're seeking to build these, these huge farms. They're acquiring all this land under one ownership, under one control. And the problem is this is disobedient to God's word. God, they're, they're violating the terms of their covenant obligations to the Lord. See, the land belongs to the Lord. And he has allocated all this land to specific tribes and to specific clans and specific people and families in Israel. And the land was to stay within these families for all perpetuity, forever. It was not to be sold. And if for some reason it had to be sold, it had to be returned to the original family during the year of Jubilee. See, this is the way that God provided for his people. It was through this land, through the produce of the land that he had given to them. God was providing for his people. I remember a few weeks ago in our study of 1 Corinthians, we saw that the Levite tribe, they were not given land as an inheritance. It says the Lord was their inheritance. See, they were not to be farmers. They were responsible to serve the Lord, serve the Lord full time. And they, they were provided for it through the tithes of the other churches, or I'm sorry, the other the other uh, tribes, and this adding to fields that we see ignored God's command. It deprived small farmers of, of their way of providing for themselves, and basically forced them into slavery. This was wicked in God's sight, and also in an attempt to be greedy, they were attempting not to have to be dependent on the Lord, but they want to be masters of their own fate. See, in their minds, these larger farms would give them more security than the smaller ones. But this is not what we see as a result. What God does is he he frustrates these efforts of being self-sufficient. Verse 9 tells us that their houses became desolate, desolate without inhabitants. Verse 10, God withholds the yield of these farms. It says that 10 acres would produce one bath. That's about six gallons of produce. That's not even enough to feed a family. Probably not even enough to feed a family for, for a week. A home or a seed. That's about 60 gallons of seed. So they plant 60 gallons of seed. This would only produce an ephra, which is about five gallons of grain. So imagine producing, planting 60 gallons of seed and only getting five gallons of grain. Basically, it was useless. And what we're seeing here is God will not be mocked. If you disregard his commands and attempt to be independent, God curses the land. And that's what we're seeing. The second woe here is seen in verse 11 and following. This is against those who who rise early in the morning, only so they can run after strong drink and and drink late into the evening. So these are basically the people who spend all day in the bar drinking. And not only do these verses speak of the overindulgence in wine, it also mentions music. Verse 12, they have the, the lyre and the harp and the tambourine and the flute and the wine at their festivals. So basically what we're seeing is these guys are partying. That's all they're doing. They're partying. That's all they're concerned about. Fun, recreation, folly. Don't we all know people like that? Maybe some of us were people like this. <clears throat> Second half of verse 12 says, while they're concerned with all this party, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. And remember, we're not talking about pagans here. We are talking about God's covenant people. To put into context, this is addressing the self-professed Christian. 
The self-proclaimed Christian church is what is, we're seeing here. And all they're concerned about with party. And they're not concerned about God. They, they don't even perceive. They can't even perceive the things about God. And think about this, uh, this decadence described here. This is only possible during times of blessing. Right? During a famine or during a war or during rough economic times, people are too busy. They're too busy trying to stay alive. They don't have time to party. They're focused on surviving. See, this is a sin of those who have been blessed mightily by the Lord. They have so much abundance, so they spend their time focused on themselves and their own folly. And God's judgment here fits the sin. The consequence here is he removes that blessing that has given them so much, uh, so much time, so much abundance. And as with this parable, God is removing the hedge that he has around his people. And he's allowing them to be invaded and to go into exile and experience this horrors of this humiliation. Verse 13, it says, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Verses 15 and 16 summarize this judgment. It says, Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the Lord God shows himself holy in righteousness. See, man here is, is humble, but God is exalted. God's righteousness is seen here. His justice is seen in this judgment of his people, and in this God is glorified. The third woe we see in, in verses 18 and 19 are on those who, who basically instantly mock God. In verse 19, they say, Who say, let him be quick? Let him speed his work. They're talking about God here, that we may see it. They're basically call, all, wanting God to, to, to do their bidding. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Again, these, these, are, these woes are directed towards God's covenant people. These are not pagans. These are people who should know God. And what they're doing is they're taking God for granted. They have this sense of entitlement. You have, of course, God is going to do what we want. God is, God is, uh, is, is let him make himself known to us. It almost ex sounds like they expect God to answer them. It's almost like they have this, uh, this mentality that he's, he's a genie at their beck and call or some divine butler you know, who's going to answer. Your wish is my command. And sadly, this is exactly how many of us treat the Lord. Look at the next four verses, verses 20 to 23. And these verses sound like they could have been written directly to us today. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And isn't this us today? Isn't this our secular media? Isn't this our modern political system? Don't we call evil good? And good, evil, we see it all the time. And they don't purposely do this. See, they're not like the, the cartoon villains who know that they're evil. It's not like uh, Jafar's little uh, sidekick, uh, Iago, saying, Oh, evil one, oh, you're, you're rottenness. You know, these uh, cartoon villains know they're evil. But everyone recognizes it. But that's not the case here. The people addressed here, they think they're actually the good guys. They see themselves as champions of human rights and, and social justice, not realizing that they are opposing God. They're opposing God's word. And unknowingly, they're promoting actually Satan's rebellion against God. They call evil good and good evil because they are blind. 
Did you not know the difference? They do not know the difference because they reject God and they reject God's word. See, only God's word, only God's word can divine, define for us what is good and what is evil. And apart from God's word, all we have is opinion. Verse 21 it says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And here again, we see the arrogance. The arrogance that is all too common in those who reject God and his word. Right? If we reject God's word as standard for, for our morality, then we are left only with our individual opinion. And we arrogantly, arrogantly proclaim this opinion as my truth, and it's my unquestionable reality. Verse 23 continues this, the, the condemnation of the evil exploitation and, and justice shown toward the weak. Those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. So here we see what a mess God's covenant people are. Really, what a mess we are. And all of these condemnations that Isaiah pronounces could just as easily apply to us today, if not more, to the 21st century American church. We are really a mess. But I want us now to, to shift our attention for a moment. Not look at it as the, the condemnations are coming to us, which, which they are. But I want us to shift our focus to the prophet himself, to Isaiah. I want us to put ourselves in the place of Isaiah, who has now been preaching for five chapters of judgment against these people, against his own people. And I think it's safe to say that Isaiah is not a popular person at this point. In fact, I would suspect that Isaiah is, is vehemently hated by the people of Judah to whom he is preaching. And not only does he face the hostility of those who hate him and, and hate this message, his eyes have now been opened to the evil that he is now calling out. And many of the people have, have been accustomed to this ever-present evil. Right? It no longer shocks them. They're, they're used to it. They've made peace with their sins. They're oblivious to their own evil and, and really the utter heinousness their actions are in God's sight. But not so for Isaiah. Isaiah is seeing the wickedness from God's perspective. And can you imagine, can you imagine how disturbed and, and disgusted Isaiah is feeling at the sight? And not only is he disgusted at the sight of the sin, but he's brokenhearted by the, by the failure of his countrymen to repent when they're confronted and their further rebellion and, and, and the increased hardness of their hearts that they see towards God. So the question is, how could Isaiah go on? How can he do this? Right, would, you want, would you want to do this? Now, as Christians, we do. We do play a, play a, a prophetic role in our culture. We are to speak God's words and to speak out against the evil we see in our culture. So how can we do this? How did Isaiah do this? Well, I think the answer comes in chapter 6. And remember, this event described here in chapter 6 actually occurred at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. Chronologically, chapter 6 occurred before chapters 1 to 5. So let's take a look at chapter 6. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his, his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What a vision. What a vision. Isaiah had an encounter with God. Isaiah saw God's holiness. He saw God's glory. And this encounter with God changed Isaiah. How, How could it not? And it was this vision, it was this encounter with God that enabled Isaiah to persevere. This amazing encounter with God empowered Isaiah's ministry. It enabled Isaiah to endure the hatred and the abuse and the profound sorrow that accompanied his ministry of of proclaiming God's judgment to God's people. So let's take a closer look at this vision. Let's take a look at this encounter with the living God. The first thing we notice about this vision, I think, is its sheer magnitude. The Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, the the train of his robe filling the entire temple. In in, in ancient world, the the splendor of a king was represented by the splendor and the the magnificence of his robe. And some of these kings would have robes that are 20, 30 feet long. Multiple attendants had to hold the train of this robe as the king entered. But here we have the Lord. The Lord is described with a robe that fills the entire temple. The temple was a huge building. And just think of the whole volume filling up with this robe folded upon itself. I mean, this train would have been hundreds, maybe thousands of miles long to fill up the entire t- temple. The grandeur of this, of this would, would, would be more than even the most splendid kings and the most magnificent kings would be insignificant in comparison. And here, this is, this is a symbolic about how much greater God is than anything we know, anything this world can produce. <clears throat> the fact that they are in the temple itself, this is significance. See, the temple is the place where God meets with his people. In Isaiah's vision of the Lord's train, which represents, again, the glory of the Lord, this is a visible representation of the spiritual reality of God's glory filling the temple. God's glory really dominating his meeting with his people. And think about that. As us, we are now in the temple of the Lord, so to speak. We are now meeting with the Lord. Is his glory the dominance Is his glory the thing that is most on our mind, most gets our attention? That's how it should be. Then we have the vision of these angelic beings, these seraphim. And what this does is this indicates the Lord's reign transcends the earthly realm. It includes the heavenly realm. And God is is not a local deity just for this one part. He is supreme over everything, over the entire universe. He is God of all creation. There is none that is above him. And the seraphim here are, are described as having six wings. And the purpose of each of these wings is described, and, and, and this, is, this is significant. R.C. Sproul points out that the seraphim here are uniquely equipped to survive in the presence of God's holiness. God has equipped them in a certain way that they can actually survive where they are in God's holiness. It says with the two wings, they cover their eyes, so they're protected from the, the awesome brightness, brighter than the sun of the glory of God, the holiness of God. 
And then with two wings, they, they cover their feet. Again, according to Sproul, the, the angelic feet represent their creatureliness. As, as, as splendid as these creatures are, they are still creatures. They are still created by God. So covering their feet distinguishes that they are created angels. They're not the creator God himself. But even more important than the angels' autonomy here is the angels' message. And the message is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, not only is the temple filled with God's glory, but the whole earth, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. And the representation, the, the, the repetition that he has, holy, 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 as, as we sang this morning, this is for emphasis. You can think of their, their being holy, that, that's one time. And you can be having very holy, 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 saying it twice. But then there is most holy, 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 holy. This is the superlative of holiness. Again, R.C. Sproul has taught and preached on this chapter. This chapter is, is the basis of his classic book, The Holiness of God. And it's really been the, the center of Sproul's theology and teaching. And if, if you've never listened to or read Sproul's teaching on this passage, I would highly recommend it. As a matter of fact, when I was talking to Steve last week, and I told him what I was preaching on. He said, I love Sproul's teaching on it. Have you listened to that? And I said, I'm not, I'm not R.C. Sproul. I'm not going to be preaching like that. But that, that is amazing. When, when you read Sproul's, how, how he... How he looks at the holiness of God, it completely changes everything. In verse 4, we see the, the foundations of, of the threshold of the temple. This is an inanimate object. It even reacts to God's holiness. It reacts by shaking at the Lord's voice. The, the temple is filled with smoke. Again, this is a, a physical representation of the Lord's holiness and the Lord's glory filling all the earth. And on God's holiness... We can, we, we can have a, an entire sermon. We can have an entire series on this holiness. And again, I would rep, re, recommend Sproul uh, to listen to that. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on Isaiah's reaction to this holiness. Reaction to this overwhelming manifestation of God's holiness. And look at Isaiah's words in, in verse 5. <clears throat> he starts off, woe is me. He's calling down a curse on himself. Because he saw God's holiness. He says, For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is ready to die at this point, because he has seen God. And notice that, again, this is his first reaction. Woe is me. He's pronouncing a curse on himself. He has seen God, the holiness of God, and he knows that he is lost. And he knows that he is undone. And what is the reason for his dread? What is the reason for Isaiah's woe? Well, as he says, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, the first thing I think, I think we need to recognize is that Isaiah is no different than everyone else. Isaiah is not better than anyone, than the people he's been preaching to. He is in the same boat. He is the same. He is a man of unclean lips, and he is in the midst of people of unclean lips. And it's very important for us to understand the prophet, the preacher, the elder, the missionary, the pastor, the Christian witness is not in and of himself better than anyone else. We do not proclaim the gospel from a position of superiority where we look down and say, we've got it all together and this you need. No. We, we do not pre- I don't preach from a position of, of moral superiority. I, I often say, I am preaching just as much to myself. I am up here preaching and I am down there with you as well, being preached to, because I need the word of God just as much. This is true. I like the description of the, uh, of, of the gospel as one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. 
See, Isaiah is in the same boat. He is a man of unclean lips, just like everyone around him. He's in the same boat as everyone else. He is under the same condemnation. And next, notice what is Isaiah's sin. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. This seems kind of odd, right? This is not something we normally say is a sin. I'm unclean lips. It's It's an odd way of addressing our sin. What does it mean? Well, I think this description hits at the heart of Isaiah's sin. It hits at the heart of Judah's sin. And it really hits at the heart of our own sin. Unclean lips. So what is it? Well, it's a speaking sin. Unclean or defiled or polluted lips. It's the opposite of being holy. And I believe Isaiah and the people of Judah, they spoke of God. They spoke of the things of God, which really includes all of the creation. They spoke of the things of God in a profane way. See, they failed to recognize God as holy. They refused to see themselves as God's covenant people, as being holy. And at the heart of this sin is a violation of the third commandment, where God says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They took God's name in vain. They treated God, they treated his holy name, they treated his holy character as if it was inconsequential, as if God were nothing, was not even worth consideration. Let's now look at ourselves. Do we not treat God the same way? Do we not neglect God? Do we not fail to take him seriously? Right? If we're honestly, we really don't fear God. We refer to the holy God of the universe as the man upstairs. We treat him like our servant. We treat him like a, a genie in the bottle. We too are men of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But for Isaiah, the veil has been lifted. Isaiah saw things as they truly were. He saw God as he truly was. And Isaiah immediately pronounces curses on himself. He knows he was lost. He knows that he is undone. He knows that in and of himself, he has no hope whatsoever. My friends, Isaiah is no different than each one of us. Each one of us would be undone in God's presence. We are men and women of unclean lips. We live among a people of unclean lips. But then we see grace. We see grace in verses 6 and 7. We see God act. We see God take the initiative. God provides the answer. God alone is the only one who can provide hope. Take a look at uh, verses 6 and 7. He says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And here we see atonement. Here we see the gospel. Isaiah's unclean lips are cleansed. His guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for. And notice where this burning coal comes from. It comes from the altar. So what is on the altar in the temple? The sacrifice. That's where the sacrifice is placed. And to what do all the sacrifices of the Old Testament point? Whether it's a lamb, whether it's a dove, whether it's a grain offering, what does it all point to? It points to the sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In these verses, we have the gospel. This is our only hope. The only hope for Isaiah. The only hope for Israel. And it's the only hope for you and me. See, there is no other way of salvation. It is only through Jesus Christ alone. 
As I say in, in, in every sermon, our salvation is through grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone, through the promises of Holy Scripture alone. But the vision doesn't end there. Isaiah isn't saved, and, and God says, okay, you're good. You can, you can go on your way. You can, you can live the way you want. You're going to heaven. You're fine. No. Look at the very next verse. This verse is, is very important. It shows exactly what it means to be truly converted. Verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. See, God saves us for a purpose. Every single one of us who is a Christian has a purpose. God saves us and he calls us to a specific mission. God calls and and Isaiah responds, Here I am, send me. Is that us? Do we respond to the Lord's call? When the Lord places a burden on our hearts, and it could be a burden to pray for someone. It could be a burden to talk to someone. It could be a burden to go. To go to the mission field. To go to another city or country to serve the Lord. When we get this call, how do we respond? Are we like Isaiah? Here I am, send me. They may be thinking, well, Isaiah had an exciting call. Isaiah was an important prophet. His calling was much more desirable than my call. He wasn't called to Albany, Georgia. He didn't have gnats and poisonous spiders and and, uh, poisonous snakes. Isaiah had this better call. All right, I would definitely definitely call, I would follow that call if I had Isaiah's call. Well, not so fast. What exactly was Isaiah's call? Take a look at Isaiah's mission. It's really listed in the rest of the chapter. We're just going to look at verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their, uh, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. <coughs> what, a, what a call. Isaiah's call was one of judgment. It was one of hardening. Is this the type of ministry that we would want? But we want to see revivals. I I want to be a George Whitfield. I want to be a Billy Graham. I want to see thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of souls coming to Christ through our work. That's what we want. We want to be used by God. We don't want to harden people. And I pray. I pray that none of us here get this call. But you know what? It's not up to us. We don't decide. We are his servants. And he could send us wherever he wants, and he can use us in whatever type of service he chooses. And our job is simple. Our job is to be faithful. Whether we're called to be Isaiah or called to be Billy Graham, we are called to be faithful. And if we are faithful to God, he is glorified, and he will get get the glory, and we will get the reward. But even this judgment of Isaiah had a purpose. See, God had taken his vineyard, as we saw in the beginning. He took it away from his people who were unfaithful and who did not believe. But notice, this is very similar to what Ben read for us in our gospel reading. Jesus told a very similar parable about a vineyard, and he dug a wine press. But the tenants of this vineyard, they were wicked. They refused to acknowledge that the Lord owned the vineyard, and he graciously gave it to them, and he expected fruit from them. But instead, they killed his servants. They even killed his son. Is a, a reference 
to Christ himself. And the condemnation is the same in both parables. See, God's covenant people, those who are given all of God's advantages, they failed to produce fruit. They failed to, to, to show true repentance. They failed to show that they were converted. Jesus says in Matthew 21, 43 of that parable, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. See, the judgment of God's unfaithful covenant people had a purpose. It means grace towards others. It means that the, the covenant would go out. It means the covenant faithfulness is expanded beyond this small one nation of the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And it spread to the entire world. And although Isaiah's call was to, to bring hardening and judgment to the specific people for a specific time, it also reveals God's boundless grace and his mercy as his covenant faithfulness expands, expands beyond Judah, expands to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people in the world, all for his glory. What an amazing way that God works. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that even though you called your servant Isaiah for a temporary time of judgment, you used his writings to bring so many people to yourself, to expand, to show that the gospel goes out to all the earth and to show the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for him. And Father, I pray that if there are any who hear my voice who do not know him, Lord, that you will change that at this moment, that you will open their eyes to see their need, just like you did to Isaiah, and that they could be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you give us the heart, that when you give us a call, that we will say, here I am, send me that we will trust wherever you call us, that our lives are not our own. They belong to you, and they're given only for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.